Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. So in today's episode, we're talking about a couple big, big topics. So we're talking about what partnership, capital P partnership with Indigenous colleagues looks like, um, as opposed to uh, lowercase partnerships, um, which are a little bit different and are more related to tokenism uh, in times past. So we'll be talking about how that's a little bit different in the archaeology of 2021. We're also talking about how archaeology can support bigger topics related related to heritage sovereignty. And we're also touching on a third big topic, which is how archaeology can be informed by indigenous science. And this is a this is a, a classification that is new and emerging because archaeologists have previously, and I suppose still some archaeologists have just termed indigenous science as traditional knowledge, which of course it is, but it is also scientifically based. It's another way of talking about science. Yes, and we're so excited to welcome Candace Wilson, environmental manager for Heisla Nation, to our podcast. Welcome, Candace. How does it feel to be our very first guest? Yay! I'm excited. <laughs> Um, and Candice, did you want to let us know where you're speaking from today? I'm coming to you from Heisla Territory, Heisla Traditional Territory. Lovely Heisla Traditional Territory where we have been guests quite a number of times and we always appreciate the warm welcome. Yeah, thank you, Candice. We've worked with Candice on a couple of projects now and uh, I wanted to just ask you, Candice, what, what was your first impression of us? and and um, has that changed? Um, well, it's a, a partnership that has been developing over time. And initially, it, it was great to have that interaction with female business owners. Um, you know, it's being a mother, that's just a kinship that we have together. And we sort of connected right off the bat. And knowing that you guys uh, were handling our artifacts, I knew it was going to be done to the best of your ability because you guys are mothers too. So um, taking care is one of one of those mother type qualities. I love that. I never heard, I've, you know, it's so interesting because I've, you know, in archaeology, you don't hear that feminist or feminine qualities are considered explicitly positive. So it's actually really interesting to hear that, like that so-called feminine quality of, of care can actually improve practice as archaeologists. Yeah, that, that was my first impression. And um, just over time, you know, we've been working more together, specifically on the, the big project that we had in our traditional territory. Um, and the simple fact that they're so old um, and you guys' professionalism in terms of executing the project um, you know, making sure we're a part of every single detail, um, despite um, potential contract implications. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it goes to show that um, 
you guys prioritize um, the the indigenous input into um, your guys's work. Can we back up a little bit? So before we were hanging out, and thank you for all of that good feedback, but before we were hanging out, what was your experience with archaeology? So what did that look like um, historically in the territory? Um, so I've been in my role for approximately four years. And within those four years, I've been dealing with major projects, the pipeline and the facility project and they usually take people in from like Fort St. John or Vancouver, and they don't have that local um, aspect of their companies. And so that it's makes it so disconnected. And ever since we've been working with you guys, we've been pushing these bigger companies to, to partner with you because you guys have the local knowledge and we have the work, the really great working relationship already whereas um with these bigger companies coming people coming in from out of town um they don't have that uh relationship it's awesome i was gonna ask candace so like heisa obviously has a really clear vision for what they would like to happen in their territory and that's not just for example, you know, maintaining these strong connections with the past, but it's also very forward-looking in terms of developing upward socioeconomic uh, opportunities for the community as well. And I just wondered if there's like it, it, how the how how archaeology and those kind of larger forward-looking goals kind of come together, like how the past can kind of inform those goals from Heisla's perspective. Ooh, great question, Jenny. I, I know it just rolled right off my tongue. <laughs> so with our, so I like to term it economic reconciliation because mm. um, in leaders past, so Ellis Ross was our chief counselor for quite a number of years. Um, and his, his driver was economic reconciliation. So that we can be above the poverty lines. So we can look after ourselves um, you know, as the Indian Act um, deemed us as wards of the state, essentially, and they were to look after us. And it's like, we don't need people to look after us. We can do that on our own. Mm-hmm. And having these big projects within our traditional territory um, gives us that opportunity to be able to have our own programming that's not um, outlined by ISC, Indigenous Services Canada. You know, the sky's the limit, essentially. And to be able to tie um, the work that we do with you, um, you know, we initiated a contract with you ourselves Mm -hmm. to be able to get past the whole project and their deadlines. And whereas if we had to abide by the project timeline and their processes, it would have been way too late. And then we would have been in a bind from that aspect. Economic reconciliation gives us that freedom to be able to connect in different ways. I've never heard that term economic reconciliation before. That's a first for me too. Yeah. And I wonder like I, when, when Ellis Ross developed that as a term, what did he see? Or I don't know if he did, but is there kind of a tangible milestone that would let Heisla know that they've reached economic reconciliation or is it kind of more of this ongoing process? It's an ongoing process and I think we've already reached it. Um, you know, we have 
uh, social programs. Um, I don't know if you guys know about James Harry. Um, he's a Heisen Nation Council employee who is employed to go to downtown Eastside Vancouver to essentially approach people living on the streets to see if he just goes out and says, do you want to go have coffee to reach out to these vulnerable people? And they may not even be Heisla, but he knows who is Heisla and who isn't. He provides meals for them. He gets um, bagged lunches to go out and provide these types of things to those people. And so that type of social program um, wouldn't be available if we were just under Indigenous Services Canada funding. That's amazing that he's doing that. I had no idea. So it sounds like there's this overall vision for not just economic health, but I think like overall health um, in the community, because we, we talked about economic reconciliation, but that's kind of just one of many things that are happening. So let's talk about the Minette Bay Project. Uh, it became almost a case study or a, a blueprint for collaborating with HISLA and um, a good a good example of how to collaborate for um, projects like that for other communities. Did you feel that it was successful? I believe so. Right from when it was uh, discovered. Are you doing air quotes? I can hear air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I had that personal connection. I had that emotional connection. And just the way it all played out and we ended with the video, um, the video was so uplifting and so mm -hmm. uh, refreshing. You know, it just brought to life those emotions and that connection. And I believe that is a connection with all of Heisla. So everyone that ever sees the video, they, they tell me they get emotional watching it. Um, so that in itself is uplifting. And, and then the working relationship between Heisla and Clanza has been amazing. I honestly don't want to do any other projects without that type of connection too. Um, so I'm shooting for the stars. Yeah. But isn't, isn't, it, isn't it crazy? Cause that shouldn't be shooting for the stars. Like that should just be a bit more normal. Yes. What are the takeaways? Like if you were giving advice, let's say to other archaeology companies or other clients or whomever, like where do they start to create these kinds of projects where looking back on them, people are still feeling good about them? Just making the connection, having meetings on a regular basis and just mm -hmm. getting to know people, just how they work. And so, you know, Clienza knows how our processes work and you guys don't, um, ask for anything out of scope and so developing a personal relationship almost yeah it can be hard in a work setting but at the same time when you think about the bigger picture of connecting the work now to what it was back 1700 years ago so you know that in itself has to be you have to have a, a good working relationship why do you think archaeology is so personal? Because it it seems to really ignite really strong feelings for a lot of people. And I and I certainly mean descendant communities, of course, but not just descendant communities. It seems like everybody has an opinion about archaeology. Uh, I guess it's also a question for Amanda. Like, why why do you think that is? I think it's just because it it becomes very personal because you're 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 talking about 
people's heritage, which is personal, right? It's mm-hmm. their ancestors. For me, there's um, a point before and a point after. Um, and when I talk about the point, it's um, that point where the fish weirs were were discovered. And the point before, you know, we dealt with a lot of um, culturally culturally modified trees. Those were the main types of archaeological sites that we had in our traditional territory. But this site is so unique. Any point after that discovery, you know, it it's, makes that connection stronger. Um, so if we were to put it in terms of what the provincial government calls strength of claim, that's where it comes in is it, it strengthens our connection to the resources that we used. And as we were talking, I was just thinking back and our first project together, Candice, it was a different client and it was a different project altogether than the one where we found the fish weirs. And I remember um, we were trying really hard to form a relationship and like get, getting to know each other and getting to know Heisler's protocols. And it was difficult because the client really didn't want us to interact without them being present. And I found that really hard. I don't know if there's any advice you could give for any potential like developers that are listening in terms of like um, the communication and and how critical that is for a project's success. I wouldn't have any advice for them, but I'd have advice for the Indigenous nation in terms of um, voicing what you'd prefer, because that's what we done with the project here is we essentially told them we need to have that connection. So um, you're not going to interfere. We're going to do what we're going to do. And we have that ability because this is our traditional territory and they're coming in to do business. So they have no choice but to to listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> but even then it was it was hard like on on our end to get a client to, to listen. And um, we weren't sure if they were listening to you. And um, it only really became more uh, strengthened in terms of like our ability to communicate when Heisel came on as, as a client and, and when you guys started paying for aspects of the project, then there was no way they could say, you can't talk to Candice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because Candice is now a client. So it changed the dynamic. What I can say to whether it's industry or whoever the contract is with, they need to be open to three-way communication and maybe developing like an MOU at the beginning to say, this is how we're going to work and figuring out who's doing what role and how we interact. What I was saying in the beginning, I think before we were recording, because I had jumped into this recording from a meeting with one of our staff who has a challenging large client who's doing the same thing right now, today, in 2021, this client is trying to prohibit us from talking to the nation. So they're trying to, or not trying to, they're explicitly um, saying that we can't send emails to the involved nations unless they read through them and they have to vet them. And, And that's very common. And it's very common. And I'm always kind of left scratching my head because I wonder what kind of risk management like table (laughs) was developed where it was like if 
these people talk to each other, the archaeologists and the nations talk to each other, the risk is off the chart for this thing. And I cannot figure out what that thing is. I'm not sure what what folks think will happen. It doesn't make sense at all. I don't I feel like it could only benefit the project. Well, heaven forbid we might share information. It, it's almost like they're they're seeking to control heritage, right? They're seeking to control the meat like how it how it's how that information is used and if and I think I think at the end of the day they're nervous about giving up what they perceive to be power so it's like if um the nations are more involved for example with developing a field method like a field plan for how we're going to test for a site how we're going to dig then it's going to be larger in scope and it's going to be bigger and then the client would like it to be, or that they have worked into their initial contingency plan. Um, And so I'm wondering, I'm always left scratching my head and wondering how can I do this differently with the next client? Like how can I kind of set that up with the next client so we're not, you know, still doing this? I'm always shocked when it happens, which maybe is me being naive because I've been through it so many times. It's almost like the, some many of our clients don't even want us to find anything like they prefer that we do our survey or our desktop review and we don't find anything and then they can just develop their project and and then maybe if we're talking and collaborating and information sharing we might I don't know like yeah we might find something but like there's no way we would make something up like there's if there's physical evidence there on the ground it's it's either there or it isn't there so then archaeology is still seen as being obstructive to development i wonder though like other resources or other other management of other resources has seemed to overcome that obstruction so for example if someone has a creek on their property Right. And I'm not saying they're the same thing, but I'm just working with a simple example. So if someone has a creek in their property, um, they, you know, there's setbacks they have to deal with and there's environmental considerations they have to bring into their work plan so that the creek is protected. And it's just kind of worked into it. And archaeology obviously is different in that it's people. And here in BC and Canada, it's it's archaeology and culture that's related to people who are still here. So obviously that's different as well, but it seems a bit, it seems a bit contradictory because the province has like designated archaeology a resource like anything else, right? Whereas they've made this very much one size fits all legislation to come in and just treat archaeological material as material as not being very significant to people today i think sitting down with the client ahead of um doing any work to to say whatever is found um you know it's it's going to be recorded um and assure them there's going to be a path forward maybe ask whether they have a a working relationship and whether it's good or bad with the indigenous nation and then maybe offer the potential for a working relationship um, with the, the nation, because that's a part of the whole process. And whether it's the client that has a good working relationship or the archaeological company. And if everyone's okay with it, then 
um, there shouldn't be an issue if there's anything found. But there's always that question from clients that like, is there going to be a showstopper? Yeah, we get that term. Yeah. And what would a showstopper be? They're often thinking ancestral remains as being a, a showstopper. I'm, I'm also thinking we have some, I, we have a large client down the South here, a large municipality that we've worked on a number of big infrastructure projects with. And so they're a textbook case of a client that should be quite nervous of archaeology, right? If we compare them to other clients, because they've got these very defined um, work plans and budgets and timelines, and they really don't want them upset. But what I have found is like talking about this stuff from the beginning and it's somehow if we give them the worst case scenario and are just super, super honest about that, what, what, what they see as the worst case scenario, I don't see it as the worst case scenario, but, you know, paint a picture of, you know, the, the from a project management perspective, this is the so-called worst thing that could happen. And if they can create that as data within their work plan and their budget and their timeline, it seems to bring it into a language that makes them quite comfortable but but they but the client I'm thinking of they were very receptive to that and I've tried that with other clients and they're not always as receptive. Even with the work I do day in day out, um, working with different companies, they just have a different mindset. Like the pipeline company can totally tell they're from Texas and they just have that persona about them, <laughs> and it's gets annoying sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> And compared to the facility project, they're more about consultation and engagement. And so they take the relationship between us and them very seriously. And that goes through every step of their project. It's going to just be that way. It's going to be whoever you guys decide to do business with. And you can say no to a contract, right? Because whether it's based on just their business ethics that's the way I see it. Yeah, we say no sometimes. Um, we, we try to evaluate projects and clients before we take them on to ensure that they they fit with our, our ethics and our values. And we want to make sure that it's going to be a good fit. And then what I was going to say earlier while we were discussing the fish fear site and, or showstoppers, I was like, yeah. well, 1,700-year-old fishwears should be a showstopper but um we figured a way around it so and we all came to agreement so um that's what's important is as the nation we knew how important this site was to the company and then Clienza was in the middle trying to make everything work for everybody and I think we came to that do you think it would have ended or do you think it would have you know it's not ended the site the site is still there and it's still um, being cared for, but do you think that the course of the project, it, it would have been, do you think it would have had such a good final chapter if Heisla hadn't been one of the clients? Is the, it was the explicit partnership what made it different? Is that what made this project different or was there other reasons? I think that's what made it different yeah. um, for us to be able to sit and have a chat um, and figure out the best path forward because we've done that many a time throughout that process. I'm trying to picture someone else doing that particular project and thinking about these bigger companies from Vancouver that aren't 
local, um, it would have been, it would have had a way different feel to the whole thing. And I'm sure there would have been the same outcome, but um, it was just way easier with us developing that, that relationship. I also think it would have been way different if you weren't involved, Candice. I think you were a big part in um, ensuring the success of that project. Just the way you handled it and your personality and everything. I think you did a really good job. Thank you. And I think I did mention that I was contemplating going back to school for archaeology. And then I was like, <laughs> that was one of the, the late night, um, midnight, just laying in bed thinking about it. And then I'm like, no, that's just tired talking. Like That's just that's crazy talking. Really. No one goes into archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> And then you spent like day after day out there with us with the mosquitoes and the mud and you changed your mind or you came back yeah. to your senses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we also had a couple other things that went on during that project. Like, obviously, we're really focused on the field work. We've ta talked a little bit about um, the film that we made coming out of that project and how meaningful that was to the community. We've talked about the connection. With, between archaeology and title and rights um, and strength of claim and those kind of larger issues. But we also had a couple other things that I think really contributed to the success of the project. Um, and one of them was we were doing a training course at the same time. So we were building capacity within the community, which we should touch on. And we also developed uh, an internship. That in itself, I was hoping that the the intern would be able to go back to like that would urge them to go back to school because I'm all about education yeah. and advancing um, our people and so um, I hope that maybe it sparked an interest mm -hmm. and if not then it, it's just great work experience because throughout my career I've done a whole lot of different things and and that just forms you into um, who you become later on in your career so yeah um, that was one of the, the great outcomes as well. Yeah, I think so. Amanda, did you want to speak to kind of the framework of the internship? Yeah, the internship was amazing. It was, it was just uh, initially a six-week program that Jenny developed. And then, uh, well, Jenny put together the framework for it, and then we just kind of made it ad hoc. <laughs> and we worked with really nice lady from Heisla, uh, Tannis Wilson, and she uh, did an amazing job with the internship program. She learned a lot about the archaeological processes um, that, that we deal with with a project. So preservation, conservation, and also data entry, report writing, all the different aspects that um, go into a project aside from the field work portions. So it's, it's the, the lab work and the paperwork that we do. It would be nice to see similar internship programs like that for projects that are ongoing. Uh, they don't have to be long-term projects, but projects that continue on for at least six weeks or more. Give that opportunity for a member of the community to work closely with the archaeologists so that they can learn what we do and, and hope to inspire them to want to go back to school and, and do either archaeology or something related to 
cultural heritage for their work in the future. And ho hopefully that helps to build capacity within the community. It'd be great for Heisla to have their own archaeologists. The way you guys were interacting with Chief and Council as well when we've done the presentation to them, I believe everyone can um, connect at a personal level. And I think that was almost immediate with Chief and Council. Oh, I don't know if you guys know, uh, Crystal is Chief Counselor again. We I had her saw, yeah, she's good. Who did it? Congratulations, Chief. Yeah. Actually, I remember that particular meeting that we had. Amanda, you had come directly from the field. Yeah, um, I looked, and my hair looked pretty bad in the video. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, a couple minutes ahead of you, and it was really bad weather, and so we had mm -hmm. we were late arriving, and so, but we were still offered food immediately upon arriving, and then we just brought the food in, and we're kind of like eating and doing it at the same time, and and making it work. We revolve a lot around food. Yeah, of course. It's <laughs> even, the best. Even at a personal level, I'm like, everything's got to be about food. But with our meetings, um, they usually happen around dinner time. So mm -hmm. that's one way to motivate people to get there is food. Um, and then we do business <laughs> after. I wanted to touch on something that we said that we were going to cover today in this episode, but we haven't touched on too much is this idea of Indigenous science and it comes to mind because you were just talking about the LNG Canada um, funds that were being used for the Ulican research. And you kind of talked about uh, traditional knowledge a little bit. And I would say that when I was coming up as an archaeologist on many projects, the project was set up so that there were the archaeologists and then there were the other folks who worked with indigenous communities on traditional knowledge. And so there was this separation of like the archaeologists on the science side. And then there was this other, um, you know, nebulous category of traditional <laughs> knowledge where it was often, um, in my experience, it was a white dude leading these conversations. And he didn't know what he was doing. I don't say that to be mean. He, he was just very new to this role and had just been thrust into it. And we weren't allowed to talk to that group. So we were all out on the same shift. And it was a really large team. It was like, Amanda, that was for CGL. And there was like sometimes yeah. like 12 to 17 people in a crew. And then there was the traditional knowledge group or the TEK, traditional ecological knowledge. And then there was the archaeology group and we were not allowed to talk to them. We weren't allowed to, for example, be recording an archaeological site and then talking to the folks on the traditional knowledge team and being like, um, you know, is there anything here we're missing? Like, are there, you know, plants that we're missing? Is there non archaeological data the way we would classify it which could inform the site it was like this distinction between science and traditional knowledge and it seems like that's changing quite a bit that's kind of ridiculous that it happened <laughs> that way you know it was a few years so this would have been in 2012 that research design was not developed by us it was developed by somebody in Alberta who I don't know they thought that was a good idea that um, the TEK folks would be collecting the ecological knowledge. We would go out together as a team, but then once we got on the ground, we were separate. And like Jenny said, yeah, not really communicating. We also found it was awkward for safety because they would take off and go a different direction. And 
no one had radios to communicate where they were going and what the plan was at the end of the day. So yeah, it was just, it was um, not, the, the research design wasn't developed well. And in the end, when it came to the reporting, the archeological report, which was written by uh, folks in Alberta, reviewed by us, it, it had my name on it. And in the end, the archeology span branch did a review of that. And, and I think it, like a pretty intense investigation on that traditional ecological knowledge component um, looking into why the two weren't connected. So it wasn't, it wasn't done well. And in the end, the review of it was pretty, um, pretty bad. <laughs> so I think um, it's a good example of how not to do things. And, and when you see that, uh, that site out at Minette Bay, for example, you can see the connection between the ecological knowledge so clearly and all the traditional plants and everything on the landscape is connected. Those are two areas that should not be silos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we had an inquiry from one of the companies on TEK. And then I, I don't understand. They're like, so this site here, which is like dead center of our traditional territory, they're like, is this a high site? <laughs> like, um, it's safe to say that any site within our traditional territory is a high site. <laughs> I don't, I, I literally had to type that in an email. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and if you guys need our traditional territory mapped, um, I could potentially send you that file <laughs> to overlap with your, your GIS people as well. That's bananas. <laughs> Do you get that a lot? Um, not a lot, but it was actually the first time having to state that in an email. So, <laughs> um, but speaking of indigenous science overall, mm -hmm. um, you know, you guys see my pictures when I, when I'm processing fish in my smokehouse or getting oolikins and working on those. Yeah that in itself is a science like hanging fish in a smokehouse you have to know how to do it properly for it to not fall to the ground <laughs> so something as simple as that and then um the whole cycle the the annual cycle of what fish is readily available at what time of year those observations and uh knowing what is where when um, that in itself is a science as well. But yeah, those are just things that I think about in my day-to-day -day life. Even when we went out to uh, capture footage for um, the origin story, just being out there and looking at everything that we utilize on the land, um, you know, there's the trees, there's the water, and everything about our lifestyle, there's a science to it. And, that, and, and to make the connection kind of crystal clear for folks who are new to this idea, that informs how we as archaeologists understand archaeological sites. So for example, if we're looking at a fishware site, 
we and we know like Minette Bay that there's a village nearby there's a forest garden nearby it's an entire archaeological landscape that people were living in and smoking fish and hanging fish that helps us to understand the material remains that are left behind right because archaeology is all about taking these tiny little physical representations of the past to build this larger story and if we don't have that understanding of what a, a, a smokehouse looks like, for example, or what it could look like, then we're not going to be able to recognize that archaeological material. And, and, and we lose that richness in kind of telling the archaeological story as well. We're, we're, just, we're, just using, we're just using the material as like data points, which isn't telling a, a human story at all. You guys are welcome to come to my smokehouse anytime. Oh my God. I love your fish pictures and I'm dying to meet your dad because he clearly <laughs> is the guy. <laughs> we should do Minette Bay origin story. Can we let Candace tell it? I think I'm going to throw it back to you, Amanda or Jenny. <laughs> Amanda can start it off. Okay. I just wanted you to give, give you that opportunity, but we can talk about how that project began. It, uh, it started in the spring of 2018, I believe it was, and I had been contacted by a friend of mine who works at Triton Environmental, and they needed an AOA done ASAP. Um, an AOA being a desktop archaeological overview assessment. Thanks, Jenny. Anytime, I'm here. It's so hard not to use acronyms. <laughs> um, so yeah, a, a desktop overview of this project area, which we call Minette Bay, as it's named. Um, and they needed it right away because there was an aspect of their environmental certificate uh, where they were doing some fish weir habitat offsets. And somebody had forgotten to check the box along the way to do an archaeological assessment. And the the project was planning on getting started right away. And so this was this was um, one aspect of the project that had somehow been overlooked. And so they were hoping that we could do a desktop review of the area from an archeological perspective and give them the feedback that they had like the green light to, to go ahead um, with their offset project. And we, sorry, I'm gonna ask the clarifying questions. We'll have to say what an offset project is. Maybe Candace can describe that. Uh, so that's the Fisheries Act authorization uh, where they had uh, marine impacts. So in order for them to offset their impact, they had to develop uh, salt marshes. So um, they went in to develop a salt marsh in Minute Bay North and Minute Bay South. That's essentially putting in fill uh, and putting in like sedge grasses and stuff. And yeah, so that's their offset project. And they had to do it within a certain time frame. They had they had a permitting window that they had to complete this within. So right away, so this was in the spring. I I, I can't remember if it was April, I think it was early on. Right away we looked at the the area and we could see that it was in like a really high potential location. It's the mudflats, marine environment. We know there are village sites in close proximity. So my recommendation just verbally to 
my client at Triton was that they needed to do more than an AOA, more than a desktop review, that we needed to get out on the ground and look around and do either a preliminary field reconnaissance to see what was there for physical evidence and assess whether or not, you know, the potential for the area, which looked to be high when looking at it on a map, was actually the case. They, they wanted to step back and say, no, let's just do the archaeological overview assessment. Let's put the time into writing that report. And then that report took several months to get um, the recommendations that we put in there, which were, again, to do further work, to do an archaeological impact assessment, to apply for a permit, to get out and, and walk around, physically look at, at the landscape. And finally, after several revisions, months and months of giving these same recommendations, they, they said, okay, kind of reluctantly, um, let's apply for that permit. So we applied for the permit and then that in itself took months to get. And so we found ourselves into, um, into the summer getting close to the fall and there was pressure from the client that this work needed to be done so they agreed to have some of our archaeological staff go out with members of Heisla Nation and do what we call a preliminary field reconnaissance, which is PFR for short. And during that PFR, the guys that were out there immediately started um, noticing what they thought were fish weirs, which were these stakes wooden stakes that were pounded into the mud and they did not look natural. They looked like they had been placed there. A lot of them in like a linear fashion. So we took that back to the client and said, we have, we have fish weirs. They also found the forest garden when they were out there, which is a traditional forest that is right along the, the perimeter of the marine environment and the forest environment. It contained a lot of traditional plants, crab apple, hawthorn, um, rice root, just to name a few. And we, we gave them some preliminary recommendations, but then went back to, to write the report, which takes a bit of time. And at that moment, I think the client um, didn't realize that this was a showstopper. Um, we didn't really. I guess communicate it properly to them that this was this was significant and needed further evaluation. So uh, once that that was known and everybody could digest that this this information, what we had found, we then recommended that we do further investigation, get some dates dating samples from the site, and send those off to find out exactly how old the fish weirs were. So once we got approval to do that, it, um, it was December of 2018. So it wasn't an ideal time to be out there doing field work. And we only had, I think, five days to, to gather the information that we needed. Magical five days. <laughs> and it was in the middle of a, I don't know, there was like a, a mixed rain, sleet, snowstorm very windy and very cold. And Candace had um, 
she had pushed uh, the idea of doing a film. So it was a Heisla led initiative to have a film crew come out and document this, this finding and, and uh, the, the whole process. So that's what we did. And nobody knew at the time how old the site was. And I think the client was hoping that the site was, was not very old, <laughs> not very significant. Um, that's the, the, the feeling that we got from them. But um, it turned out that the site was 1800 years old and uh, we continued to work on that site. So we were back out there in 2019 and um, 2020 as well doing more research and uh, Candace had uh, the film crew come out again and do a second shoot. So there will be a second film coming out. I I'm just wondering, I'd love to hear Candace's opinion of those five days out there. <laughs> In December. Mm -hmm. Wonderful five days. <laughs> it was really wonderful. It was very busy and we were all there. I had come up for it. We had a big team out there. Um, but yeah, like, do you have any, like, do you remember them? Do you remember those days? Clearly remember those days. <laughs> um, um, so from my perspective, you know, as managing, um, my field crew, like Chris Howard, and then also the film crew. So, um, going, be bouncing between the two, I knew the film crew was well on their way. Um, the producer had some very great ideas and just the way everything played out, you know, they captured a whole lot of footage in the five days. Yes, they were grueling, but at the same time, it just felt like everyone there was a part of our history. And that's the amazing part. That That's what I love the most. And um, at the end of five days, um, I had to go from field gear to all prettied up for our Christmas party back when I remember we that gather together <laughs> in big group not wearing masks <laughs> <laughs> um and why like because the film was an initiative coming from Heisla and led by you like why did you want to do that in the first place and and I'll just preface that by saying like in terms of doing that film it was a it was a real eye-opener for me because I had been struggling for years with this idea of the only production of our field work is ever a technical report that is largely inaccessible to people who maybe aren't trained in archaeology. So it's very jargony. It's very technical. Can't really understand it. And oftentimes we're the last people to see this material before it's um, you know, roped into a development or destroyed during development or whatnot. And so having this technical report as like the final expression of archaeological sites means that it's largely lost from everyone unless they unless they engage with this report that is hard to get access to and hard to read. And so that was, you know, something that really resonated with me that this is a, a way of doing almost like visual reporting. But I, I would love to hear what your vision had been for, you know, getting that initiative rolling for this project. So we have uh, one student that's potentially interested in archaeology. And so um, because of the school schedule and she was, I think she was down south for, for uh, post-secondary. 
And so she wasn't able to get back in time to participate. And that was one of um, my biggest goal was to have as much Heisla interaction as we could with our members and employees and students. And so I was thinking, well, maybe I can just take iPhone video and make a compilation and put it on YouTube or something. And then look like, but this site is so unique. I was like, it deserves more than that. And I remember working, I've done quite a few videos for um, the projects in our area. And so I had connection with uh, one of the production companies and I figured, you know, they've done such a good job on these other videos that they would probably do amazing on this particular project. So then you reached out to that production company and they were immediately excited? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there was no hesitation. Um, and they started looking into getting getting to Kitimat, having the proper crew. Um, and then I remember <laughs> taking them up on... Um, our side by side. <laughs> I think that was probably the highlight of um, the shoot was being up on uh, Robinson Ridge, uh, looking over Minute Bay. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm sad that you guys couldn't be part of it. Maybe we can go do that another day. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> promised me the world, Candace. <laughs> I just remember, yeah, you whipping back and forth in that side by side. And I was like, that's oh, cool. I could just walk everything in. I don't mind. I'm really packing a canoe. I loved riding the side by side, Candace driving. <laughs> she always has this like huge smile on her face. It's either a huge smile or this real serious look. <laughs> There's nowhere in between. Well, I'm so glad that you took that initiative and, and that the film was made and we, we all had a part in it. It's literally like a piece of history now. And it's there for the future generations to watch as well. I, I think it's a, it was a real turning point for our company as well. Um, Absolutely. Just, you know, like not just the film, but the entire project, because it, it seemed to me at, at that time, and we can only go up from there, but um, at that time, it was like the, the best expression of partnership and collaboration that we had. And then adding the film as a way of like continuing those ripples out from the project to have positive impacts, to be an educational tool, um, to be a visual repository of the site. I think it developed the, the, like this, these aspects to archaeological projects It brought in this potential for, for future archaeological projects that we didn't necessarily knew existed. Um, and we'll also post a link to that film that we keep talking about if folks would like to see it and learn more. Candice, do you remember, do you remember how the whole um, council and elders, how they reacted and felt about the archaeological experience? Because it was, it was probably not just a special experience for us talking about it. And I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I'd love to hear kind of their, their feelings about the whole experience. <laughs> not that you can speak for people who aren't here. So I mean, very generally. <laughs> Yeah, so we actually um, showed the video at the Elder Center uh, where they have, they gather, I believe, once a week for like a luncheon back when we were able to. Um, and we showed it to them. And usually these types of things just invoke the memory of um, them being out on the land and they just start telling stories. Um, oh. 
and it just continue like it just um gets the memory going and it's always nice to sit and talk with an elder and listen to their stories of what they used to do in terms of um fishing or berry picking or you know they they talk about the land and it just um demonstrates that connection we had and still have and so another way that archaeology is so important and, and potent because it helps support that transmission of information and passing on information and that multi-generational connection as well. Mm-hmm. And it was the same with chief and council as well. Like it, it just sparked memories and had other people thinking about or listening to their grandparents' stories and retelling those ones generation to generation. You took your daughter out to the site a few times as well. Yes, uh, actually just the once um, before we went to remove the stakes. Um, that was very special. Uh, it was one of the things that I asked um, your guys' client to do, and he he let me do it on one of the weekends. So it was quite awesome that I could share that with my daughter, um, you know, that she was able to go out and see. Because at that point... We weren't sure if there were going to be some left in the ground or not. And now uh, there are some left. And I did push uh, for the the newer site that we didn't even get to talk about yet um, <laughs> <laughs> that they tried to say they wanted to cover. And that was not a negotiation point for me. Um, I told them flat out, we've given up enough and we're going, we're going to keep this site. I did love when you did that. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best. They, they thought for some reason that by covering it, capping it would preserve it for future yeah. use in some weird twisted way, covering <laughs> it with, with over two meters of fill material. Yeah. And that just goes to show that whole three-way communication aspect um, and how we ended up having to inform the province of what had happened. Um, um, and I think maybe by me saying what I did at that meeting that I actually don't know what happened after that. <laughs> so we should go back and t- um, tell the listeners about the new site and why it was discovered and how come we hadn't found it earlier. It just kind of popped up. <laughs> and. Yeah, just to just to let everyone know that that Manette Bay area is a very dynamic environment. It's always the tide coming in and the tide going out. And that when the tides come in, they can be sometimes five meters tall and a lot of silts come in with them. And then when the tides go out, then the silts settle. And if it's stormy, um, just depending on the weather conditions, there can be things in the mud that were always there, but you didn't know were there. And then all of a sudden they're showing themselves. So we were finding that every time we went back to the site, we would find some fish weir stakes that we hadn't seen before <laughs> and others that we had seen before that were just, dis- that were no longer there. So some were popping out and, and disappearing. So this new site that was found, it was found in the winter of 2020. And 
Do you want to describe the site, Candice? So when I was informed about it, one of the archaeological monitors were out while they're um, developing the salt marsh and they were approaching the north end of their site. And so I believe it was Kevin uh, that highlighted there's more stakes in the ground. And it turned out there was, um, it was more subsurface and it was mixed in with, uh, with rocks. Um, but there was a definite linear aspect to it. And so um, their footprint was just at the edge of overlapping with this new feature. And so this is the point where Heisland Nation Council contracted Clianza directly to uh, investigate that site a bit more to figure out where the where it ended and where it started um, in relation to the footprint of their salt marsh. And so um, we ended up doing another field session and collecting um, samples from that particular site. And again, I think it was around the same time of year as the previous one. <laughs> Um, because we ended up sending the samples off in December and then we didn't get the, the results till January. Um, but those came back. I can't remember the exact number now. I used to know it, but I forgot it. That site turned out to be closer to 3000 years old. Yes. So much older than the, the original dates that we got from the other sites. And then after we got the dates, um, we had to sit with um, the project and essentially tell them that, you know, this site is quite significant as well. Um, and that's the point where they tried to ask if they could just cover it up. And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I specifically told them, you know, we've given up a lot and I, I don't think I can give up on this one. So these ones are going to stay in situ and you guys are going to avoid it. And luckily enough, they were able to go back to their engineers and uh, redesign their site where they shifted it about 50 meters south. So they managed to get the area that they needed and we managed to keep our site um, intact and um, not impacted at all. So it was a, a positive outcome in the end and a win for everybody. Yes. And the site's still there. So there's potential to do further investigation on it if Heisla chose to in the, in the future. Yes. I, I would say that it's, it's probably safe there for a thousand or two more years. Yes. As long as there isn't any kind of development that happens. But now the site is recorded. So it, it will be uh, better protected um, now that it's under the Heritage Conservation Act as a protected site. And we never did find out the extent of the site because we, uh, we had challenges with the tide that time of year. We just couldn't get uh, a window of time where it was daylight and where, where the tide was out for long enough for the folks to do any digging. So we ended up just leaving it as is and um, the buffer that was placed on it should have been uh, more than sufficient. So I think it was, it was good. And it was good that you pushed back on preserving it. I'm really, really happy about that. I enjoy hearing that story every time. 
It never, it never gets old. Like it has everything. It has twists and turns. It has bad weathers. It has, you know, deep, deep history, cool archaeology, cool methods, um, feel good story. How have you guys grown from this? Like, is this this new way of working together? Is it a new way of working together? Like, why why is this still so notable? And and like, how has it, how has it changed things on a personal and or professional level? For myself, it's, it was a whole lot of education and even on my own history, like, um, this is something, you know, I've asked around about, like, did you know we had fish weirs here? I've asked people and they're like, no, we had no clue. Um, so history revealing itself was amazing. Um, so that gave myself personal growth and the professional growth, me sticking up for what I believe in. Um, you know, this project is gave me that opportunity. Um, and I, I can, it gives me confidence that, um, I can go to other people and other projects and do the same thing. So sticking up for sticking up for us, for the nation and, um, having this history to back me up essentially um this is our strength of claim and nobody can compete on it well Candace, I love that <laughs> how about you Amanda well it's definitely changed me I learned a lot through that project just from beginning to to where we are now and there's still so much to learn the project isn't completely over it's ongoing. We have these artifacts in our lab here in Terrace and we're daily caring for them. They're floating in water at this point and we're learning more about the preservation conservation process. It's been a bit of a struggle because of COVID. We haven't had the support from the Canadian Conservation Institute that we had in the beginning of the project. And um, the lady that was mentoring us has retired, as far as I know. So we're just kind of at a point where we're, we're seeking further training, further education on the preservation process and the next stage that the artifacts need to go through um, so that they can eventually come out of the water and be displayed in a museum uh, we've the me museum that Heisla chose uh, is the exploration place in Prince George. So eventually, all of the materials will go there, and they'll be um, held there until at some point they can come back home. Uh, ho really hoping that Heisla will be able to have their own cultural heritage center at some point, so we can bring the artifacts back and and display them on Heisler territory, that'll be a happy day. And I learned so much through the, the whole film process as well. That's the first time that I've been involved in a, a film production. And I hope, I hope we can do more of those. And it's um, helped Jenny and I to uh, develop the stories and outreach department in Clianza. And we're trying to promote for more archaeological projects like this, that uh, a film is produced so that 
the community has that involvement, has that visual preservation of the project. And it's just, it's so much more that like Jenny said, it, it provides so much more to the community than, than the technical report does. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm hoping we can, we can do more films. In addition to all that, like, I think that in, in like in addition to just the awesome archaeology, the experience to work on such a unique site, it's such a fragile site, and mm -hmm. and such a rich site. Like it has all of these components, um, as well as like the dramatic landscape and Heisla territory is always beautiful to work in. I have a lot of like really excellent memories of different projects in the territory. I always love working up there. Um, and in addition to our, our friendship and our partnership with Candace, which has really come to not only direct me personally, but also it's, it's impacted how we do business as well, which is really critical and developing the stories and outreach. So all of those things that everyone said, but in addition to that, listen up developers, it's also changed our bar for where a project should be. <laughs> and, and it's hard for us to go back. And so I think that that's critical as well. Like we've seen, you know, we've gotten a taste of, of how good um, projects can be. And on the books, this wouldn't look like a great candidate for that because there's so many cooks in the kitchen, a lot of big players, a lot of heavies, you know, critical timelines, uh, all of these different things, which might seem intimidating or scary in terms of having a case study for best practices. But the reality is best practices can be applied on any scale of project, large or small. And it really is just those same principles of, you know, having a coffee, regardless of the size of the project. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that is something that we have always incorporated into our practice at Clianza. We love having coffee, wine, coffee, tea. Um, we're into all of it. Sushi. Um, sushi, donuts. <laughs> Um, and that's where, you know, that's where decisions are made. They're made face-to-face. -face. They're not made in email. They're not made over the phone. They're made when you sit down and share some food, share some time and listen and talk and then listen some more and then listen again. And it's, that's the fun part. And I think that folks kind of shy away from that, um, which they shouldn't. That's actually the most fun part of this whole enterprise. So I think that it, it certainly has like informed our values as a company, but I think it's also galvanized our values of wanting to do good community-based archaeology and wanting to do archaeology, not just for archaeologists. It has to be more than that. Like those days of archaeology being done just so other archaeologists can read a technical report and put it in some sort of repository. I mean, those days cannot get far enough behind us I, I just, that's just not the way forward. So this project really galvanized and has come to be this, this great case study of, of what archaeology can be. And the project still went ahead, right? It wasn't just, you, you, we don't just measure success of archaeology by like, oh, the archaeology won and it's, you know, wasn't touched and the project went away. Heisla explicitly, as we talked about in the beginning, has, you know, great aspirations for their community and not having aspects of poverty in the community. And this is one of the ways the nation has identified that's important to them. And archeology span facilitated that and also helped the strength of claim at the same time. And the project is still going ahead. So it took a lot of extra work, but it really did set the bar 
I feel. I agree. Um, doing archaeological work with other companies, um, they, they will have to strive to meet that bar too. So yeah, they will. <laughs> <laughs> and if they don't, Candace will tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's also takeaways for this relationship. Um, not just for archaeology, not just for partnerships between archaeological firms and nations. That's that's one example for sure. But there's also, you know, other industries and other firms that are working with indigenous uh, folks as well, right? We're not we tend to have our archaeology hats all the time on, and and I think that if we were going to provide some kind of larger we're going to provide some larger guidance. It's, I think it has to be to not kind of hide behind the legislation when engaging with Indigenous folks. And the reason I say that is because in Canada, we're really coming to terms with our history right now in, in a major way, long overdue. And I know it's painful for a lot of people, but it, it's critical that we go through it. But part of that recognition is that these legislations that were hiding behind many times, they were never developed with indigenous values in mind. And, and, and that's, you know, that's not just my opinion. They were developed within a system that didn't consider those things. And so as long as we're hiding behind those, or as long as we're um, working in any industry that has legislation that we uh, are, you know, are using as a guidance document, we're only ever going to have the floor of ethical behavior. And I know I mentioned this before, but so my advice would be to folks working outside of archaeology in any industry is to, sure, start with the legislation. There's things that need to be there that need to, hoops that need to be gotten through and boxes that need to be checked. But it's about recognizing how that legislation was developed in the first place and that it's simply not a appropriate as a full expression of how to engage with Indigenous communities in 2021 at all. I have been doing um, some projects within our community and I ended up having to hire another, um, do another contract for this smaller company. And it was so refreshing that, you know, the first time I met him, we we're out in the field and I had to go do a quick meet with them in the field. And so he was like, oh before I came here because he's from interior BC and he was like I was looking at things and we just he just randomly talked about the Gup's Gold Hole and how mm. um, the Swedish people came in and just stole it and so you know just doing a bit of research before coming here goes a long way so you know he wanted he done that on his own behalf to be able to understand where he's coming to work and it's just something so simple so after all of these years of working together like what what does the future hold like what are we what are we appreciating about each other because we've hung out professionally we've hung out personally um and I, I can go first I I have to say that the thing that I'm most excited about is I feel like we're just getting started I feel like there's a lot of, you know, younger people. I'm going to say we're younger. <laughs> we're younger people, uh, you know, mid-career people. We're mid-career women um, who also have children. And we're finding ourselves in these leadership positions. And I think it's just the beginning of where the discipline is going to go. So I appreciate that we are changing our professional framework while still preserving like our personal health and friendship with each other. Um, that's my current appreciation. I will 
say ditto. And the fact that we are impacting those around us too, by doing so, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And Candice, I really look up to you as a mentor, um, just watching you as a mother, as a, a manager in your department. And I don't know all of the goings on, but I see like little bits of it from your Facebook posts, um, just the challenges that you face in your job and in your career and everything that you have to, to deal with day to day. But seeing how cool you were with getting through COVID and, and being a mother to your daughter, I really look up to you and, and respect you. Thank you. And what I appreciate about you guys is that we, we have connected on social media you know, and that gives us a glimpse into each other's lives. And I think we we're just so lot, a lot alike. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we work together so well. We should find somewhere in the middle of the province and um, <laughs> go camping for two weeks. Oh, my God. Yes. Just tell, just <laughs> drop, drop a pin on a map. And just <laughs> tell me when to be there. And I will load everyone into the van and we will be there. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.